You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 121, Thrifting. Hello, and welcome to episode 121 of You Don't Know Flat. I'm Rob O'Hara, and today is January 27th, 2013. It's a little bit later than I normally record. I've been recording uh, pretty much at the break of dawn, but uh, things came up today, and I didn't really have the show finished. I wasn't sure what I was going to record today, and um, I kind of changed it around. I had originally, I have a show on deck about main cabinets, but it wasn't quite ready, and I've had a request for this for actually a couple of years now. So today's episode is going to be about thrifting, and with thrifting, I'm including shopping at thrift stores, antique malls, garage sales, uh, and pawn shops. So before we get started, I give a quick shout out again to the No Quarter podcast. Those guys are uh, really ripping it up over there. If you enjoy classic arcade games, head over to monsterfeet.com forward slash no quarter and check out their podcast. They recently did an episode on 1942, the arcade game. Uh, They also recently covered Omega Race and Moon Patrol, which is one of my favorite uh, classic games. So uh, I'd also like to give a shout out to The Retroist, who has been putting out podcasts. Uh, He's put out several since the beginning of the year. He recently did one on The Last Starfighter, the movie. And he also did one, the latest episode is about the animated Dungeons & Dragons series. And the episode before that was Cloak & Dagger, which, uh, if you're not familiar with, is where the alias Jack Flack came from. So, uh, yeah, be sure and check out RetroS.com. There's updates every day about retro toys, uh, movies, films, books, anything you can think of. And then the podcast uh, is obviously uh, really good, too. So, without further ado, I'm going to jump right in to a little bit about thrifting. I grew up basically in the 1980s. I was six years old in the year 1980, and I was 16 at the end of the 80s. So um, I, I don't really know why. I don't know that any of us know why uh, we enjoy the things we do, those of us that enjoy retro things. Um, but I do. I enjoy buying things that I had when I was a kid or even things that I didn't own when I was a kid but would have liked to have. And unfortunately, you can't get a lot of those things at normal stores. You can't go to Walmart and buy vintage Star Wars figures. You can't go to Radio Shack and buy, uh, well, anything computer-related anymore, really. But you certainly can't buy, you know, blank floppy disks or uh, uh, old computer equipment. So to get a lot of those things, you have to go to unique places. Now, right off the bat, uh, we all know that a lot of these places have taken a hit over the last several years due to online sales, and I'm talking about eBay, Amazon, some other ones. So I'll talk about those uh, towards the end of the show, but for right now, I'm going to focus on some of the physical places that I go to, which include, like I said, garage sales, thrift stores, uh, antique malls, and pawn shops. 
for each one of those, I'm going to talk a little bit about the positive and negative of those, and I'll share a few stories about some of the best things I got at those and also some of the worst things. So. The first one I'll talk about are garage sales. Now, we all know what garage sales are. It's when uh, people list an ad and they take the things out of their, the extra things, I guess, out of their house and take them out to their garage or driveway and, and sell them. So, obviously, the positive of garage sales is that you can get things insanely cheap. Um, also, when they have these neighborhood garage sales, you can hit a lot of garage sales uh, all at one time. My dad's neighborhood has the Sun Valley garage sale once a year, and you might hit 40 or 50 garage sales on that day. So uh, neighborhood garage sales are a great way to hit a lot of garage sales all at one time. The negatives of garage sales, first of all, they're obviously very hit or miss. Uh, you might hit several garage sales, dozens, and not find anything that you want to buy. Uh, sometimes the prices are high. Um, some people are under the impression that they're running an antique store instead of a garage sale. So... Um, that, that can be a little frustrating. Um, sometimes it's awkward to walk up to you know people running a garage sale or whatever, so I, I put that in the negative. Uh, and then also there's a lot of driving involved in garage sales. If they're not having a neighborhood garage sale, then you might spend uh, a lot of money on gas or time just driving around to various garage sales. Now some of the best things uh, that I have picked up in garage sales. And, you know, I've been sitting here throughout the day, just kind of running down through my head, things that I've run across in garage sales, not computer related. But one thing I do remember buying at a garage sale, uh, was a gigantic tub of Legos. Um, I have several Rubbermaid storage containers. So this is about the same size as one of those. So I would say it's somewhere between 20 and 25 gallon tub. And these people had it outside at their garage sale. They had it marked for $200, which um, it's obviously worth a lot more than that. If you were to, I mean, if you have kids, even if you don't have kids, um, some of these Star Wars sets that are out right now run for $100 that aren't even that big. The Death Star set, I think right now, is $600. So um, Legos are insanely expensive. So $200 for a 25-gallon tub is actually a very, very good deal. The problem is not most people that go to garage sales don't have $200 cash on them. And so we visited this house uh, towards the end of the day and the afternoon, maybe 2 or 3 o'clock, something like that. And I offered them 100 bucks for the tub, and they took it. So that was actually a great deal. Um, I still have all the Legos that I had as a kid, and I thought I had a lot of Legos, but, I mean, this dwarfs my lego collection uh, i'm still kind of anal when it comes to i know this is weird like on my toy collection uh i don't let the new star wars characters uh, on the same shelf as the old star wars characters i have the vintage ones on one shelf and i have the new characters on the other shelf and likewise um i had a, a hard time combining my old original legos with this new tub of legos so for a long time i actually had uh two tubs of legos but I did eventually mix all the Legos together. But that was a really good garage sale find. Uh, another garage sale find I had one time was uh, an Atari 2600. Now, the cutoff for finding a lot of these things was around the time people moved to eBay. So prior to eBay, it was really not uncommon to run into um, Nintendo systems or Atari 2600s, things like that, and find them pretty cheap. Most of these were... Uh, 
you know, these were garage sales being held by adults who had kids that were roughly my age. So these kids had moved off to college, had left these things behind, and the parents were having a garage sale and decided to toss these things out. Of course, then I came along to take advantage, and these poor college students would return back in four years, and I would own all, all their stuff. <laughs> um, but anyway, at this one garage sale, um, I found an Atari 2600, and it was sitting on top of this uh, one of those VHS storage containers, you know, with the drawers that would pull out. And uh, the Atari, I think, was $5 or something. And there was a while where I would just, you know, any Atari that I found... Um, four or five dollars in that range or whatever i would get just because i would find other people that would want them or i could keep them as a spare or whatever so i thought you know for five dollars i'll go ahead and pick this up so i pick up this atari and i go to pay the lady and i'm getting ready to leave and she says oh don't forget the games and i was like oh is there is there games that go with it and she said yeah you know the the container that it was sitting on top of so i go back over and i look at this container i pull the drawers out and if you're an Atari 2600 person, you know, every time somebody says, hey, you know, I have some games for sale, you don't even have to look at them. You could probably name 90% of the games you're about to get. You're about to get a copy of Pac-Man. You're going to get Combat. You're going to get Pitfall. You're going to get that white Coleco Donkey Kong cartridge. I mean, these are the cartridges that show up time and time again. And so... When I got this tub of games, I thought, eh, you know, I mean, I might be able to trade them to other people. This is really, again, before online auctions were big, so um, it's not like I could sell them or anything. But, uh, you know, so I go back and pick up this thing, and we're in the car on the way home, and I'm looking at them. And I would say 50% of the games in this uh, drawer were games either that I didn't have, and there were several that I had never heard of um, at that time. Um, I do remember there was a copy of Double Dragon in there. I think there was um, uh, a Red Baron. I, I don't know if that was an Atari game, but um, uh, just several games in there that I didn't have. In uh, Private Eyes, I think was in there. So a lot of you know uh, Atari games are rated on a rarity from one to ten. So pretty much every game that most of us had as kids were R1 or R2, you know, Frogger and Pac-Man and, and uh, those type of games. Uh, several of the ones of this, when I looked them up later, were R5s, R6s, R7. So it was a, just a, a really amazing find. Every cartridge in there was worth the $5 I paid. Some of them were worth, you know, $50 or more. So uh, that was a, a really good garage sale find. And then also my Qbert arcade machine came from a garage sale. One of my coworkers... But, this is um, a philosophy that I have, and not everybody has the same philosophy. A lot of people are embarrassed to tell their friends and coworkers what they collect. Um, I guess they don't want to appear nerdy or geeky or whatever to their coworkers, but I'm the opposite. I tell everybody what I collect, and it has paid off in dividends time and time again throughout the years. Uh, every time, you know, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. For example... Everybody that knows me knows that I collect Star Wars stuff. I've collected Star Wars stuff since Star Wars stuff uh, was available. I had uh, the original early bird stuff uh, in 77, 78, so, uh, and I still have those things, and I've been buying Star Wars stuff ever since then, so I never stopped collecting Star Wars stuff. Um, so this double-edged sword comes into play because people will hit me up all the time and say, hey, I saw this at a store, this Star Wars thing, do you want it? And then by the time, you know, they tell you what it is, or sometimes they'll even buy these things for you, I still get Star Wars 
items, you know, for Christmas and birthdays and things like that. And most of it is crap. And it's not um, because people are trying to do that intentionally. Because obviously if somebody buys something for you, they're thinking about you and you should be grateful for that. But a lot of the stuff, I, I had one friend, uh, a coworker who bought me some Star Wars paper plates and paper cups, like for birthday and birthday hats um, from Dollar Tree or Dollar General, one of those places. And so on the one hand, you know, you want to say, well, that's nice. They're thinking of me. But also on the other hand, I'm not planning on having a five-year-old birthday party anytime soon uh, with Star Wars paper plates. So, uh, you say thanks and you take those things, but a lot of the stuff that comes in, you know, uh, you just just kind of pass along or, or get rid of over the years. Uh, so anyway, the the point of that is is that I, I do tell people what I collect, and I tell people I collect video games and old computer things, and um, uh, it just pays off. It's like having, you know, a hundred pairs of eyes or a thousand pairs of eyes instead of just one pair looking for all these things. So a coworker of mine one time was driving home and called me on his cell phone, and he said, hey, uh, do you still collect uh those video games and i'm thinking well yeah i collect video games i have atari games i have nintendo games pc games of course i collect video games and he says well do you have cubert and i said well what um for what system you know i'm thinking well there's cubert for the atari for the commodore what and he says no 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 the arcade game the big one and i th- i was like well no i don't have one and he says well i just drove into my neighborhood on the way home and there's a Qbert machine for sale for a hundred dollars. And then I paused for a minute and I said, "Do you have a hundred dollars?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Pay for it. I'm on my way." And uh, he gave me the address. So I hung up and I immediately went and told my boss, "I have an emergency. I have to go." And he says, "Oh, well, what kind of emergency?" And I said, "There's a Qbert machine for sale for a hundred dollars. I've got to get to this thing right now." And uh, fortunately, I drove my pickup to work that day, so I jumped in the pickup, drove across town, and sure enough, there was this Qbert machine, and it was um, one of the nicest Qbert machines I've ever seen. The side art was perfect. Um, the machine worked perfectly. The only problem with that machine was that the monitor was a little cloudy, uh, so everything was just a little bit out of focus. And uh, but well worth the hundred dollars, worth you know five, six, seven times that. So I paid my friend, we loaded the machine up, and I brought it home. And the funny thing about that machine is, uh, I played that Qbert machine for, oh, five years um, with uh, that blurry monitor. And I fiddled with the controls. I tried to adjust the focus. I tried all these uh, different things. And, you know, nothing, I, I never could get it quite in focus. And uh, one day... I had to work on the machine, so I opened up the machine, and I needed to get to the monitor. So I, I flipped the control panel forward and removed the glass uh, that covered the monitor. And when I did that, I noticed that the monitor was looked beautiful. It looked absolutely beautiful. And so as I touched this glass, I realized on the inside of it was almost like a... a smoky layer or something. I don't know what was on there. It looked like maybe somebody used a cleaner and didn't wipe it off or whatever, but after I cleaned the glass, the monitor looked perfect. So I had spent five years adjusting this monitor, and it turned out that there was stuff on the inside of the glass. Um, So there you go. But uh, yeah, for uh, $100 is one of the cheapest working machines I bought and one of the best ones. So that was definitely a a great garage sale find. I really couldn't come up with any bad garage sale finds. Usually... What I would say would be bad uh, is that 
when you don't find anything. Uh, and that happens quite a lot with garage sales, and especially as time goes on. Um, I mean, Atari, just talk, because we've been talking about Atari 2600s, uh, came out in the late 70s and were popular in the early 80s. So by the early 90s, most of those things, you know, when people got rid of them, that's when they got rid of them. So you don't really see them as much now, things like that. So it's definitely hit or miss uh, when it comes to garage sales. Now, another place that I like to shop at are thrift stores. And the positive thing about thrift stores is that things are marked cheap. You can find really great deals at thrift stores. Uh, The negatives, the first negative that I think about thrift stores is that you have to go all the time and you have to go to the same ones over and over. It becomes very repetitive and almost disheartening. Um, It's addictive at first, and then it just almost becomes depressing because, um, especially once you go to a thrift store and find something, because then you know that those things are out there. And then you go the next time and you don't find anything. And then you go the next time and you don't find anything. And then you go and you go. And maybe you're going once a week. I used to go to thrift stores. There were um, several thrift stores. I could do this. This little. I had this little path that I would go through. And I could hit um, about two or three thrift stores during my lunch hour. And so I would go once or twice a week um, to visit these thrift stores. And like I said, it's terrible when you find something the first time and then you don't find anything the next hundred times. And that's just kind of how thrift stores work. Um, it's all about luck and the coincidence of you being at the right place at the right time. Uh, I have known people who became friends with people at that worked at thrift stores who would set things aside for them. I don't think you're supposed to do that, but I know that that happens. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about why there aren't as many great finds at thrift stores as there used to be later on in the program. Um, the other negative that I would say about thrift stores is that a lot of the things are dirty. Uh, I don't think they go through the same type of cleaning that people do when they have a garage sale, maybe, or like that you'll find at antique malls. So, um, thrift stores have kind of a unique smell and there's almost like a layer of, of dust on everything or whatever. And so anything that I buy at a thrift store, I used to actually have a kind of a staging area in the garage. So things would go out of the car into that staging area and then I would clean everything before it came into the house. So, so some of the best things that I found at thrift stores throughout the years, um, in the early nineties to the mid nineties, right before again, uh, you know, they all have this in common right before we start to see eBay sales and things like that. You could find retro computers and computer parts for almost nothing. The Apple II that I use today, it's sitting right here next to me. It's hooked up to a monitor. Um, I mess with this thing all the time. Right on top of it, it has a price written on it in grease pencil, and I left it on there. It's $2.98. There was a thrift store down the street from me that was putting out Apple II computers for less than $5. It's not, um, when you're a retro collector slash, I don't want to say hoarder, because that television show has given us a horrible, horrible name, um, but I'm like a good guy hoarder. I save things from the trash, and then I find new homes for them. Um, but when you grew up, and in the um, 80s, 
and you know what these computers cost, and you have these memories associated with the computers, it is hard to walk by one when you find one for sale for $3 and let it go, even if you already have one or two or half a dozen. And so um, I would go down to this thrift store, and there would be an Apple II out, and I would buy it, and I would take it home, clean it up, hook it up, make sure it worked, and the next time I went there, there would be another one, and I would buy that one. And I am not, I'm going to look over my shoulder here, I have a stack of six Apple II computers sitting right here. Um, now, the problem with a lot of these is that uh, from these six, I was able to make, like, two working ones. Um, a lot of them were missing keys. A lot of them are missing boards. Out, now, One of them is a Bell & Hal Apple II, which, if you're not familiar with that, um, Apple teamed up with Bell & Hal, and they made a special edition of Apple II computers, which were only uh, given to schools, and they are a the case instead of being the normal beige color is a very very dark gray and the keys are black and uh i'm this is uh i have seen a couple of them online on the internet or whatever this is the only one i've ever seen in person um so extremely rare to find in the wild and i paid five dollars for it it's almost like talking about two different things thrift stores then versus thrift stores now because back then uh, you know, I was bringing home Commodore floppy drives once a week and I would just stick them out in the garage for a rainy day. You know, um, one of the greatest thrift store finds that I would, I would say, uh, one time I was at a thrift store with a friend of mine, uh, Kate track uh, from uh, the digital press days. And we're walking through this particular thrift store and out of the corner of my eye, I see a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. It's like underneath the little front counter in the glass area. And so when I take a closer look, it's not a single floppy disk. It's like a clear trash bag full of floppy disks. So I immediately turn around to the lady and I'm like, hey, how much is that bag? And she says, well, it's $10. Uh, but it was like some kind of discount or something. So I think I paid about half that. When I got home and counted these out, it was almost 400 floppy disks of Commodore games. There were a lot of originals in there, um, and then I love digging through old Commodore disks um, that aren't originals, that people downloaded games to or whatever, because you never know what you're going to find. There's all these different variants of software out there. There's little basic programs that people wrote. I mean, every time I dig through something like that, I find stuff that nobody has ever seen. And then I convert them over to disk images so people can use them with emulators. So I love uh, digging through things like that. So that find for me was was really awesome. Uh, and recently, this is another weird thing. There's a thrift store at Goodwill right by my house. Uh, so right when we moved here, we were like, oh, you know, let's go check this place out. So I go in and I'm looking at the book section. And then there's a little section where there's uh, DVDs and CDs. And right there is a copy of test drive by accolade still in the box still sealed for the commodore 64 for 99 cents i have no idea what this thing is i mean it's completely out of place there's no other commodore stuff around there's no other commodore games old computer stuff nothing like that it's just this one game sitting there by itself so i buy it of course you know and uh, i bring it home and i put it on the shelf and i look at it and all this i don't need to open it because i have copies of test drive for the commodore um but I thought, oh, how neat is that? You know, so we go back the next week, and I'm looking at my shelf here. Uh, there was a copy of Grand Prix Circuit from Accolade, shrink wrapped for the Commodore 64 
in the exact same place that the other game had been. So it was like, I almost felt like they had put one out to see if it would sell. And then, you know, when it did, they put the other one out. So I bought that one, you know. And I'm like, well, that's weird. Like, why wouldn't they have put both of them out? Or maybe they got separated or something, you know. But then, of course, now I have to search the entire store, right? I'm, like, looking all around for Commodore stuff. I look in the cable section to see if there's any serial, Commodore serial cables in there. I look in the, where they have the joysticks, you know. I'm looking everywhere around for Commodore stuff, and there's nothing. I've turned the whole store upside down. Uh, so I go back the next week, and there's a copy of Hardball for the Commodore from Accolade in the box, Shrinkwrapped. This is three weeks in a row, three Commodore box games, all from Accolade, all unopened, that I pay 99 cents for, you know. So then I asked, you know, when I'm checking out, I'm like, do you know if they have any more? They said, no, we don't have stuff in the back. I mean, we when stuff comes in, we clean it up, we put it out, you know. Okay, so that happened basically, gosh, November of 2011. I've been searching that place once a week, every week since then. I've never found any other games there, ever. And so that's what draws you into that um, almost obsessive kind of madness world of thrift stores, where you find these things and they hook you, you know, especially a particular location, and then you start going there over and over and nothing else ever comes. So I keep going. I like know someday when I go there, that fourth accolade game will be there waiting for me. But um, so far it hasn't been so, but I'm going to keep trying. So some of the worst experiences I've had with thrift stores, and I jotted a couple down. And first of all, this is a uh, a general thing, but one thing that I do hate about thrift stores, and this should really be listed in the negatives, but um, uh, one thing that I really hate is that I guess in a as a way to maximize the profits that they make, they separate items out when they come in and what that means is they pull all the uh, cables off of items or the power supplies and they separate them from the items so like i used to find these commodore disk drives but they wouldn't have any cables then i would go over to the cable area and find the serial cable that goes with it and the serial cable would be marked for 99 cents which is totally worth it but it's the fact that these things get separated so a lot of times if you'll find something that needs a power supply it may not have it then you have to go over to the power supply area and dig around and try to find it so um especially for old computers and things like that it's really a pain because the items may have proprietary power cables things like that and if you can't find it it's it's kind of worthless at that point so uh but that that's something to keep in mind so two of the things, one along those same lines is when I first, this was probably 2006, I guess, and I was really wanting to get serious into podcasting, and I had a mixing board that I had purchased uh, years ago for an audio project, a 24-channel Mackie mixing board, which I still have out in the garage, but it was way overkill for wanting to do a podcast. Really, what I needed for a podcast was a couple of channels, uh, mostly to run, uh, well, I had some XLR microphones I needed to run into a mixing board to get power, but it was, it was you know, a good idea. I like twiddling with the knobs and, and adjusting the faders and things like that, so. Uh, so I thought that would be a cool thing. So I go to this thrift store, and there is a Mackie... Uh, no, uh, Behringer, a Behringer mixing board. And it's like a six channel mixing board. And it was, I think $65 or something. I, I knew it sounded high, but 
it looked like it was in brand new condition and um so I decided to take a gamble on it and the lady said, you know, when it's like ringing out, she says, um, now you know there's there's no refunds on the electronics, you need to test it out. Well, there's, I, how am I going to test it out? I don't have a microphone or anything, so I know that I'm taking a gamble with it, but I said, okay. Uh, so I get it home and I pull it out. Oh, and as I'm leaving, she says, you might want to see if there's a power supply or something. But in my head, I'm thinking, you know, I have a, I literally have a milk crate full of power supplies out in my garage. I mean, doesn't everybody? Uh, anybody that's been in computers or into technology for the past 10, 20, 30 years, whatever, uh, you know, I have this this snake's nest of cables of power supplies, these giant, ugly wall warts with different um, voltages and, and everything's listed on the back, you know, so in different sizes. So if you ever get something that needs a power supply, now it's another 10 minutes out in the garage of randomly plugging in power supplies to try to get something to work. So in the back of my mind, I was thinking, if it doesn't have the power supply, I'm okay, I'll get home and I'll find a power supply that works for it. So I get home and I open this thing up and the port for a power supply is like the size of a quarter. And it has this weird pinout, and it's not like anything I've ever seen. The first thing I do is go online to see if I can order a replacement one, and I can't. Because basically they phased out this uh, form of power supply to go to a new standard power supply, which makes sense because this thing is really odd looking. I actually went back to the thrift store at one point and looked through all the cables and the power supplies to see if I could find one you know, that fit it, but I couldn't. And I ended up... I put this thing on Craigslist and said it didn't have a power supply and tried selling it for a while and couldn't. And I either donated it or threw it away. I mean, I just uh, just killed me to do that. And the worst part was I ended up going to Guitar Center through their... Uh, they have a used area where people trade in gear. And I found a four-channel Behringer mixer. Well, it was almost identical to the one that I bought. And it was $30. And, of course, it had a warranty and it had a power supply. So, uh, yeah, that's, that was one of those, you know, let the buyer beware type of moments. Like, I really should have uh, looked at that a little closer before paying the money and walking home with that. So that was really a, a bad one for me for thrift stores. One thing that haunts me, one experience, I guess, that haunts me is I went to this thrift store one time. Actually, it was the same one I, I talked about where I bought the bag of discettes. And I have this path that I walk through the store. I walk in, and if you walk straight back, you walk past all the um, board games, jigsaw puzzles, stuff like that, and then you get to the computer area, and I look at the computer area, and then you walk back up, and there's kind of the toys, and then the uh, video game cartridges and things like that are in a glass cartridge or glass cases up front. So I had walked in, and I'd walked to the back, and I saw a computer monitor that said Commodore on it. Now... If you trade, buy, sell anything with Commodore stuff, Commodore monitors are the hardest thing to come by because they're so big and heavy, nobody wants to ship them. So you end up finding floppy disks or floppy drives. You find the computers itself, uh, and these things are, you know, I mean, $10, $20 maybe. Uh, but the monitors are always hard to find. And I'm talking actual Commodore brand monitors. So I saw this Commodore monitor, but it didn't look, you know, like... A normal Commodore monitor. It really just looked like a PC monitor. And so I looked at the back of it, and sure enough, it just had a PC connection. And I I guess it didn't register. I was just like, well, I guess Commodore made PC monitors or something, you know? Uh, 
and I, at the time, I mean, we had all moved to flat panel monitors, so I already had a collection of CRT monitors I couldn't get rid of, and I didn't need another one. So I just, you know, I normally, I would buy anything that has the word Commodore on it. This is why this is so unlike me. Uh, but I just let it go. I finished my little path through the store and came home. The next morning I wake up, I come up to my little computer room, and when I open the door, I'm staring at my Amiga. And it hits me that that was an Amiga monitor. Like, why did that not hit me? I guess I was so focused on a Commodore on the 64 that it never hit me that that was an Amiga monitor. And so immediately, I like threw on some clothes. My wife's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, oh, I got to go back to the thrift store. I go up to the thrift store, and that freaking monitor is gone. And I'm like, I mean, I was there almost at close the night before. I was there after work. And then I had gone and opened the next day and the monitor was gone. And I was almost like hysterical. Like I had, I've learned I need an Amiga monitor really bad. I've never had an actual Amiga monitor. I have all the, I have the, uh, the uh, Amiga 520 that I run so I can run a composite video out and it's crappy. And I've, I've just have needed an Amiga monitor forever and I don't want to pay, you know, $50 for one and then 50 to have it shipped or something. Uh, so it was like, that was my opportunity to buy one for $5 and I go back and it's gone. And I, I mean, how do you miss a monitor? I mean, I look at where the monitors are and it's not there. And I actually got a guy and I was like, Hey, you know, do you have more stuff in the back? And he says, no, you know, and, and I'm like, there was this thing here. He says, Hey, if it's not here, it got sold. And I'm, I was just pleading with him. I was like, can you please go look at the back? And he says, it's not. And I said, just, just for me, please. And he said, okay. And he, he looked and, and he said, no, it's not there. So somehow somebody bought this monitor in like the one hour, you know, that they were open past when I was there. And I, I just, oh, I still kick myself thinking about that, um, that I could have had that Amiga monitor for almost nothing. But um, so, yes, every time I go to a thrift store now, I go look at the monitor I, for like, you know, I'm talking about um, going to thrift stores because you found something and then you look and look and look. And every time I go to that one, I go look at the monitors in hopes that somehow this stupid monitor is going to be there. And, of course, it never is. It never will be. But uh, I still do it every time. So, But anyway, enough about thrift stores. Let's talk a little bit about antique malls. Now, um, antique malls, if you've not been in one, uh, you might think that they are full of antiques. And you're mostly right. Uh, antique malls are these little stores where people rent booths out and they set up, you know, each booth is a, um, like a little store, like a little tiny, you know, cubicle where people sell their old crap. And I would say most of the antique malls I go to, I'm not interested in 90% of what's there. Uh, so I'll go in and there's glassware, you know, there'll be a whole booth on glassware and then there's a booth on old ladies hats and, you know, photographs, and just crap that you could not care less about. But several of these thrift stores have um, little retro-type booths. And uh, so, anyway, the positive of antique malls, number one, I think things there are cleaner than thrift stores, you know, um, because it's it's like little stores, so people, you know, clean the things that they're going to take up there and sell. And, and also... When you find a booth that has things that you like, you know, it, it may be a lot of things you like all in one little area. So that's really good. The negative, 
like I said, there's really a high anti-crap to stuff I like ratio, for lack of a better word. So, you know, you have to walk a long way. You have to go through these things. What I actually find um, a lot of times is, especially driving uh, east, I do a lot of driving on road trips, uh, heading out east on I-40 from Oklahoma, and also heading up north uh, when we drive to Chicago. And you'll see all these signs for antique malls at different interstate exits. You know, exit now for this antique mall or whatever. And they're a great place to get out and stretch your legs. They almost they always have a bathroom. And you can go inside and, you know, usually walk the whole thing in 15 or 20 minutes. So if you're just looking for a place to stretch your legs, you could go in there. And um, usually they'll have a little, a lot of them have a little snack area where you can buy a drink, you know, a bottle of water or something like that. So... A lot of times when I'm on a road trip, I'll just stop at an antique mall and get me a bottle of water and walk around and look and see if they have anything. So uh, the negative, the other negative I would say about antique malls is sometimes they have high prices. Now, high prices are kind of a relative term, I guess, because there are things that are... Like if you're looking at action figures and you find an action figure and it's $10. And in my head, I think, well, that should be $5. Well, I don't have to buy it there. I can go to eBay where it may be $5, but then I have to pay shipping uh, or PayPal fees, or I might have to deal with not getting the item. You know, So I, I try to factor those things in when I'm at antique malls. Um, the other positive about antique malls, I guess, is that it's almost like, you know when you're in a grocery store and then you're in the checkout line and you see the little candy aisle or the little gadgets and fingernail clippers and flashlights and copies of the Inquirer and all those impulse items that are there, things that you didn't really know you wanted, but suddenly they're there and you're like, yeah, you know, I really do need this supersized thing or Reese's Pieces or whatever. Well, kind of everything at an antique mall is an impulse item. Like, you don't go to an antique mall thinking, oh, I'm going to find, you know, this specific comic book or I'm going to find, you know, an alien head mask or whatever. Um... But whenever you find these booths that have things that you're interested in, uh, then you just have to kind of look around and, and see if there are things that you're interested in. So uh, one of the coolest things, there's a uh, an antique mall pretty close to my house called The Rink. It's an old ice skating rink that they've converted into an antique mall. And there's a couple of pretty cool booths in there. And there's one that for a while had several vintage uh, payphone accessories. I'm a sucker for old payphone things, anything related to f old phones or payphones. I have a, a lineman's handset. I actually have an authentic payphone now. I had a, a couple of replica payphones, but um, I finally got a real one, and I need to reinforce uh, the bracket to mount it on the wall because it is unbelievably heavy. Um, but I found, uh, actually I found some uh, AT&T hard hat which I thought was pretty cool. And then I also got a metal sign that would hang on the wall that goes above, you know, a payphone and shows that there's a payphone at that area. Um, so I was able to get that stuff pretty inexpensively. So that was cool find. Um, there's a, several of the antique malls near me. There's one that has a booth that's filled with vintage lunch boxes. And lunch boxes, I, I don't, it's hard for me to say I don't collect something when I have a dozen of them, but I don't really collect lunch boxes. But I do buy lunch boxes that have cool things on them. Like I have 
uh, several Star Wars lunchboxes. I have a Chuck E. Cheese lunchbox. I have a metal Rambo lunchbox, which was, I guess, the last metal lunchbox that was made. So, like, I don't really, like I said, collect lunchboxes, but when I find cool ones or whatever, and about $20 is my limit. Um, so, at this one thrift store, this kind of gets into that antique pricing. They have several lunchboxes that I like. Uh, there's a G.I. Joe one that there uh, that's pretty cool. They have a Hong Kong Fui one that I just saw. Uh, but they, they're marked between 50 and 70 bucks, and I just won't pay that. Now, I will tell you this. All the lunchboxes that I own, I have taken my lunch in to work. <laughs> and people really enjoy that. I go down to the lunch area. I, I recently did this with my Metal Pac-Man lunchbox. I pack my lunch inside there, and um, I don't use the thermos for drink. Um, I thought about it, but... Uh, you know, I, I put my little, I made a sandwich and a little bag of chips and stuff and take it in my lunchbox. And uh, so that, that's good for a little, it gives people a little laugh or whatever. So I do actually use the lunchboxes. Um, now, here's a weird find that I recently found at an antique mall. I found this little booth. This was actually when I was on a road trip, one of those ones I was talking about, somewhere in the middle of Tennessee. And I pulled off on this uh, antique mall just to stretch my legs. And in the back, I find this area that's full of. 80s memorabilia type stuff and there are these black or uh, uh, little plastic cases that says trading cards on it and the first one I pick up it says complete set of ALF trading cards now I will tell you on so many levels number one I would not call myself a huge fan of ALF I mean I was a fan of the 80s and I know the show but I, you know it's not like something I ran home to watch every day I, didn't, I wasn't a, a big ALF fan I didn't have an ALF t-shirt or anything like that um number two i don't really collect sports cards i mean i have star wars cards uh from back in the day and um i did buy um actually at that same thrift store i found an entire case of ghostbusters 2 uh chewing gum or you know cards that had gum in the packs um so it's another thing i don't collect but somehow i have a lot of um so anyway, yeah, there's really no part of me that ever went into that store thinking, gosh, I hope they have a complete set of ALF trading cards, but I'm sitting here right now as I talk and I'm holding it in my hand. <laughs> so it turns out for $5, I will buy almost anything. Um, so yeah, the um, like I said, antique malls are definitely hit or miss. There could be um, another negative, I didn't really think about this, but another negative about antique malls is a lot of times you'll see very, very slow turnover. So when you go to these places, you'll see the same things over and over. Um, I, You know, a lot of them have different sales, and they'll mark stuff down in their booth or whatever. So if they're not having sales, I think they sit on a lot of that stuff for a long time. So, um, And then I guess the fourth place that I would talk about is pawn shops. Pawn shops are a little different than those other places. Uh, a positive I would say about pawn shops is they are a stationary target, if you will. I mean, the pawn shop doesn't move. It's always there. It's always open. Uh, so you can plan, you know, if you're planning a route to go to thrift stores or whatever, you can stop by uh, several pawn shops. They have a lot of media. By that, they, I mean video games, uh, DVDs, CDs, things like that. Um, the negative, I think a lot of it is stolen. <laughs> So, 
if you have moral issues with that, you might not want to go to pawn shops. Also, a lot of the stuff I find, um, when I pick it up, you can tell it came from uh, smokers' homes or whatever, because it just, I mean, they don't really do any uh, preparation or cleaning on stuff. It just goes right out, it seems like, so... Uh, and then a lot of times, especially electronics and stuff, you want to test out. And most pawn shops will let you test electronics. Uh, and most of the pawn shops I go to have a receipt where you can, you know, you can bring things back if something doesn't work or whatever. I would say, I don't know that I've ever bought anything great. I've bought a lot of stuff from pawn shops, um, mostly movies back in the day, um, you know, once, uh, everything moved off of VHS, uh, to DVD. So I would go and I would do both. I would look for cheap DVDs, uh, to build my DVD collection, but I would also go look at the VHS things and go find all these weird things that people had traded in, you know? So sometimes you could find some pretty obscure titles. Like I had found all these animated, uh, Ronald McDonald adventures with, uh, you know, different characters and stuff. I had never seen those, but uh, I got those on VHS, and then I, you know, ultimately converted them over to DVD. Um, one thing, <laughs> this is a, a funny story. One time, uh, my wife and I, when she was pregnant with our first son, we decided to take a road trip from Oklahoma to Memphis. So it's a, about an eight-hour drive. So we get in the car and we're driving and, you know, we're listening to the radio. And then once we get out of range, this would have been uh, 2001. Once we get out of the range of FM radio, I go to get the booklet of CDs and we realize we've left all our CDs at home. So we decide what we're going to do is we're just going to have conversation. We're just going to talk and do all these things. Okay, eight hours is a long time. And so that lasted about two more hours. And we were somewhere, I guess by then we would have been somewhere in Arkansas. And I saw this sign for a pawn shop and I got off the interstate. And they had a section where I, I want to say CDs were like $5 each. But then it was uh, three for 10 and then something, something, I don't remember. But I remember you could get 10 CDs for $20. So I picked out five CDs, and my wife picked out five CDs. And actually, one of the CDs I bought was Pearl Jam 10, which I knew I had a copy of at home, and I didn't care. I just needed some music to listen to. I was tired of talking. <laughs> so um, I don't get tired of talking on the podcast, but I was tired of talking in that car. <sighs> I'm trying to think about worst uh, pawn shop experiences. This is another good one, actually. When I was in Spokane... There was a pawn shop uh, that was right by my work. So sometimes during lunch, I would stop in there. And I knew that I wasn't going to be in Spokane forever, but I was a big fan of the local music scene up there. And so I would go to the CD area, and they would have all these CDs from local bands for like a buck or two, and I would just stockpile them. So I had a, a, a uh, abnormally large collection of Spokane music CDs, which I still have somewhere. Um but uh, one time I was at a that Spokane pawn shop, and I found a it's like a, a boxed version. It's like a almost like a CD long box, but it was thick, and it had four CDs and audio CDs, and it was the soundtracks to all three Star Wars movies, and then the fourth one was like a bonus CD, so it had four CDs in it. And I had seen this before for sale, and I think it sold for like fifty or sixty dollars. And they had it for like, I don't know, 10 or less than that or whatever. So I was, I was super excited. 
So I ended up buying this. I took it up to the front counter, and the guy asked me if I was a Star Wars fan. I said I was. And he said he had just got these CDs in. And so he showed me these other CDs, and what they were were... um, it was the original Star Wars trilogy on video CD or VCD. Now, I didn't know that they sold legal VCDs. Um, that was what we, at the time, when people were converting DVDs or whatever, ripping them, you would make it into a VCD so it would fit on a couple of CDs. Um, but uh, they were actually, these were a legitimate release in Singapore. And I guess basically to fight uh, or just to beat piracy to the punch over there, Lucasfilms released uh, official VCDs. And each one, each movie is on two CDs and it's the original trilogy. And he told me he'd take five bucks each for them. And, and the writing on the back is, is uh, you know, all the writing's foreign and the the CDs look great. So I, I still have those and those are like... Um, kind of a weird conversation piece I show them to people every now and then because uh, I've never seen anything like that. So pawn shops in that way um, can be pretty cool if you find the right ones, you know. Uh, Probably the worst thing I ever bought from a pawn shop was this guitar. Uh, This was also in Spokane, but it was at a different pawn shop. And they had... um, I I had a guitar, but it didn't look very cool, I didn't think, at the time. Now I love it, but um, it was like a, a, it's a, it's an Ibanez anniversary guitar, but it looks like a Les Paul, and I didn't want to play a guitar that looked like that, I wanted to play something that looked like I was rocking with Dokken, and so I found this guitar at a pawn shop, and the brand is Stinger, um, like a B Stinger, and it's red, and then the paint is, is like got black crack paint all over it so it looks like it's you know it's very 80s i mean this is definitely something that you could see um you know somebody from winger or def leopard playing some sweet riffs on this thing and so uh, i remember it was 99 dollars, and i was not rolling in the money back then i'm not rolling in the money now either but i was rolling in less money back then for sure when i moved to spokane i was making about thirty-five thousand dollars a year uh, so dropping a hundred bucks on a guitar, uh, wasn't the end of the world, but, uh, but still, you know, I mean, it was an investment. And so I got it home and the first thing I noticed is that the jack area where you plug the cable into had been all smashed in, like somebody had dropped the guitar. And then I noticed that part of the, um, locking system that holds the strings in was missing. So it only holds four strings. It's missing the other parts, you know, to hold strings, and, uh, so anyway, I decided, I, I still have the guitar and I've decided if I ever make it big in music, and by the way, I will never make it big in music, um, that I would keep this and then I would smash it on stage. So that's why I still have this guitar. So someday I will, when the, when the mood hits me, I will smash that guitar. That's the only reason why I still have it. It's, um, I mean, uh, the two highest strings aren't there and can't be put on there without replacing a bunch of stuff. So um and guitar center has good you know i don't know how all of a sudden this podcast became a plug for guitar center but i'm actually looking for sponsors for the show um and there's a a link on the website right now where you can sponsor a show for ten dollars or you can sponsor uh an entire year's worth of shows for a hundred dollars and so i'm going to proactively count this as a plug for guitar center and send them a bill for this episode of you don't know flat uh, but anyway, 
you could get a, a decent guitar a guitar center for a hundred dollars right now. So I mean, there's no reason I'm putting any more money into this stupid Stinger guitar. Um, so there you go. So anyway, what's happened to a lot of these places? Well, I already mentioned uh, eBay, and eBay breaks up this entire ecosystem of especially garage sales because here's the problem. All these things, like a garage sale, people want to sell their things at a garage sale, and so they have an old Atari, and let's say they have an old Atari game or whatever, and they're going to put five bucks on it. Well, then they go look on eBay, and people have buy it now for this Atari, and it's $100. Well, now they're not going to sell it for $5, are they? No. So they're going to either put it in their garage sale for $100 because they know a guy who's asking for a buy it now of $100, so surely it's worth that. Or they're going to not put it in the garage sale at all, and they just put it on eBay. So either way, you don't get to see the item anymore. Um, Also, people, a lot of people when they're cleaning house, like we have a a box out in the garage, and instead of throwing things away, we put it out in there and we donate it uh, to Goodwill. Well, now a lot of people don't do that. If they're going to throw it away to Goodwill or they're just going to give it away, well, hey, we could put it on eBay or whatever and make some money. So... Um, now the only saving grace for a long time for eBay is that there were giant things that people didn't want to mess with shipping. For example, that Kubert cabinet. When I went, uh, to buy that Kubert cabinet, the guy mentioned that he was thinking about not selling it and thought about, uh, putting it on eBay instead. And so I started playing this little thing that I used to do with people. I just started asking questions that I would say like, yeah, you know, you could probably get, get some money for that on eBay. How, how do you ship something like that? You know, I wouldn't even know how to do that. God, I bet that would be a lot of money to ship something. How do you, you know? And so I would just plant these little ideas. Like, I, I didn't try to talk them out of it, but I would just plant these little ideas. And then eventually they would say, yeah, you know, that's a good point. I guess I'll just sell it to you. Ha <laughs> um, So eBay had that one thing where if it was a, you know, a giant monitor or arcade game or something, well, they didn't necessarily want to sell it on eBay because they didn't want to ship it. Well, then came Craigslist. And Craigslist is just an online crappy garage sale website. Now, don't get me wrong. I like Craigslist, and I've sold quite a bit of things on Craigslist. I've actually sold and bought cars. I've sold uh, two different motorcycles. I bought the same motorcycles on Craigslist. Um, So I buy and sell on Craigslist, but the issue with Craigslist is the same thing as as, um, you know, people don't want to donate stuff because why would you throw something away when you could just list it on Craigslist for a couple weeks and if nobody buys it, then you donate it. Or if it's something you don't want to ship on eBay, well, we'll just put it on Craigslist. Um, so Craigslist has definitely taken a bite out of the garage sales, um, antique malls, all those, those different types of things. Um, now, another thing that has come up in the last few years is several thrift stores have launched their own auction sites. One is shopgoodwill.com. So if you go to shopgoodwill.com, it is an online auction site for Goodwill. And if you go there and look, now this is an interesting point because I was just saying the other day, I haven't seen an Atari 2600 in my local Goodwill in at least five years, maybe more. So if you go to shopgoodwill.com and type in Atari 2600, guess what? There are dozens of them. And so what these Goodwills are doing to make the maximum amount of money, and I'm not blaming them for wanting to do that, but what they do is when you donate something like that, it doesn't make it out to the show floor. It gets set aside, and it gets auctioned online. I just randomly typed in Star Wars figures on shopgoodwill.com, and there are 
massive collections of Star Wars things that I would have loved to have found in my local Goodwill, but instead they're online on this auction site. So uh, that's good for them. They're making money off of it, and they're doing, you know, so they're raising more money, and that's, like I said, that's good for Goodwill. That's bad for people like me who like to go to Goodwill and are hoping to find things. So um, there's another website that has come up, and it's the same, along those same lines, is now the public school system has an auction site. So whereas uh, they used to donate things like desks and chairs and things like that to Goodwill, now they get auctioned off. All the old school computers get auctioned off. Uh, the AV equipment you'll see on there. So it's not going to Goodwill anymore. They're just, you know, selling it and keeping the money inside the school system. So again, great deal for school systems, bad deal for people like me who used to go to thrift stores and find these things. Well, that's about all I can say about thrifting. Um, Find, if you're interested in doing these types of sales in your area, there are several apps. I have a couple of apps on my iPhone. One's called Around Me. And you could go there and just, uh, you know, do different categories, uh, look for thrift stores, antique malls, and it'll tell you places like that that are near you. Um, there's also lots of Craigslist. There's official Craigslist apps and lots of unofficial ones. Uh, but you could get on there and search Craigslist for garage sale. Uh, you could even put in, go to the garage sale category and then search for certain things uh, like Star Wars or computer or things like that and try to find stuff like that. Um but that's pretty much it. If you want to uh, start thrifting, that's what you got to do. Get outside of the house. Go out Saturday morning or on your lunch break during the week or something like that and find some of these places and go out and see what uh, treasure you can find. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of You Don't Know Flack. I hope you enjoyed these stories about thrifting. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, I would love to have your feedback. If you'd like to send comments, feedback, suggestions, critiques, anything like that, you can email me directly at podcast at robohara.com. You can also find me on Twitter under the name Commodore. On Facebook, we have a page now, which is titled You Don't Know Flack, so you can find us on Facebook. And this is the first episode where we are announcing You Don't Know Flack's new voice mailbox. That phone number is 206 309 9501. Again, that is 206 309 9501. So if you'd like to leave us feedback, call that number, leave a message at the voicemail box, and it will email it directly to me. With that, this concludes another episode of You Don't Know Flat. As always, thanks for listening, and I look forward to talking to you all next week. <laughs>